and I had a bit of a sore groin. I said to Graham, mate, can I go off? And he said, no, you're not going off. And I said, mate, I need to get a little bit of treatment on the groin. He said, no, you're not going off. I said, Graham, watch me. And I just walked off. Well, that's a pretty ordinary thing to do. So he followed me up into the grandstand and we're arguing inside the rooms. So the 12th man goes on. That means there's no there's no 13th man. So it's the only time in the history of Australian cricket where we've only had 10. And then the next morning I got called in front of Sir Donnelly said, Rodney, <laughs> we can't condone that sort of uh, activity by you. You'll have to brushen up a bit if you want to keep playing for Australia. <laughs> G'day sports fans and welcome to Quinny's Cold Heroes, thanks to the Ladbrokes Listen Network. Today we're live from the Camfield in beautiful Perth. The sun is shining on this winter's day and I'm joined by a hero of Australian cricket. A warm welcome to Rodney Malcolm Hulk. Quinny, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having a chat today. You've brought the beautiful weather as well. You're a native Victorian, but you can get used to this Perth sunshine anytime. Three and a half years in Perth. Magnificent. Best place in the world. What led I... to you moving to Perth? Uh, COVID and Dan Andrews. Okay, fair enough. So you fled the state and never returned? Never coming back. Never coming back? Jeez, the Victorians will be heartbroken to no, hear they that. Won't. No, they won't. The weather, I miss my daughter, obviously, and granddaughter, but the weather over here is just for old people. It's, it's a good retirement area. You're looking fit as a fiddle, I must say. Now, it, technically, you're in your 70s. If you had a seat, you're 51, I would not have doubted you for one second. What's your secret? Is there a lot of rubbish in this, uh, what this where, where we're going here, Quinny? <laughs> no, not at all. I feel 72. And nice of you to say that. Thanks very much. No, you do look very sharp. You're keeping fit? Trying to. What do you do? Go to the gym, a little bit of benching, try and walk, play a lot of golf, badly. And what else do I do? Oh, I uh, do uh, what they call it uh, when you go down the beach. I think it's called um, um, putting, here we go. I've forgotten. Really? That's, that proves I'm 72. Because <laughs> a lot of former athletes, especially fast bowlers, have a lot of problems post-cricket with their body. Have you had any injuries that you've been bothered by over the years or are you still fit and sound? I don't reckon cricketers do suffer old age injuries. It's footballers when you get bumped and, and all that sort of thing. You don't get bumped playing cricket, do you? A lot, so, of, a lot of the so fast no, bowlers do, though. So no batsmen are going old injuries. A um, uh, few, few bowlers have a little bit of back trouble. Knees, knees are the big thing. Yeah, so I've had my knee done, and I would suggest that most bowlers probably get their knee done. Garth McKenzie, he's had both knees done. Tommy Hogan's had both knees done, they're Western Australians. So knees, for sure. Now, looking at your physique, I think it's safe to say you buck the trend a little bit in terms of fast bowlers. You've probably got the physique of a batsman. You started as a batsman and ended up being a great fast bowler for Australia. Tell us about how that changed, because what you played as an opening bat for the Victorian under-14s. Yeah, well, um, yeah, so I was also a bowler for the under-14s as well. Um, as you go along, when you're 15, you go down to a senior club. I went to Northcote when I was 14, so you're wasting your time trying to bowl quick to men that are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So you, you sort of try and bat a bit, and then just as you go through. And then I think I, think I got hit in the, um, I got hit by a ball once on over the eye when I was about 17, 18, in, uh, in the indoor centre, and from then on I knew you can get hurt batting, so I got a bit timid about that, so um, I became a bowler. And you would have had no helmet, I'm presuming? No helmet. No it's helmet. a lot better giving out pain than receiving it. So you, isn't it? you decided to be a quick bowler, and watching so many of your highlights, you had a magnificent bouncer. How did a bloke who, I'm guessing you're about 5'10", have one of the best bouncers in world cricket? Hang on a minute, 5'11 and 3 quarters <laughs> when I was playing, if you don't mind. I'm not Malcolm Marshall. <laughs> 
For goodness sake. I'll say a Collingwood six-footer there. Collingwood six-footer, yeah. Um, look, it might sound stupid to you, but I tried to bounce the crap out of my father when I was about eight in the side drive. And it must have been just something that was in the system and it just went along and I practised it a lot. And that's what I amazed today at, at training where the young blokes can't practise their bounces. And at, at Northcote when I was a kid, you could bounce them because no one, every, people hooked you all the time. It was just an accepted thing. But as you've gone along now, you can't bowl bounces in the nets. But And so you can't practise it. You got a lot of wickets with your bounces, but also used it as a bit of a soften up technique as well. A bit of an intimidating factor. And then two or three balls later, you got them out. Was that a key tactic or sometimes did the white line fever just kick in and you weren't thinking that far ahead? I don't know if the bouncer always got people out. I think sometimes they got hooked for four as well. I don't know. You're being very kind of me there. Um, well, it's the thing about pushing people back. And I think we saw um, in this test match where the Poms are batting out of the crease to try and eliminate the LBW. Well, they you're going to bowl, Boland's got to bowl more short stuff to force them back. You've got to force them back. But I mean, the wicket at East Bastion was probably a bit slow at times to probably commit to forcing them back. But as this series goes on, we'll be forcing them back. Don't worry about that. Now, you were going through the grades nicely, but you relocated from Victoria to South Australia to get a crack at Shield cricket. What led to that decision? And how hard was it to leave your beloved Victoria to play for South Australia? Pretty easy to do. I couldn't get a game for for the Vicks, if you want to call them the Vicks. Didn't like the Vicks much. Couldn't get a game, so just got in my car one day and drove to South Australia. They didn't have any fast bowlers, so got a game over there um, within a couple of years, and that was, um, I, I thank them very much for the opportunity. So what, you literally just got in your car with no promise, no guarantee, you hadn't communicated with anyone over in South Australia, you just rolled the dice and backed yourself? Well, Gary Cozy had gone to prospect, and I, if you remember correctly, Gary Cozy in his first year in um, South Australia, got 100 on the Berg against the West Indies at the MCG. So Gary had gone over and I thought, well, if it's good enough for Gary, I'll give it a bit of a go. So I put all the gear I owned, I didn't have too much at the time. I think I was about 24, 25, put it all in a, in a little Celica and drove over. And not too long down the track, you ended up getting the call up to play for Australia. Can you remember that experience? How did you find out you'd be representing the country? Um, it's pretty funny about that because I didn't think I never thought about playing for Australia. I was only thinking about playing Shield cricket, and then one day at the Adelaide Oval, South Australia played England, and a bloke by the name of Bradley came out the bat, and I had the wonderful pleasure to bowl a short ball to Clive. He was averaging 43 at the time for England. Tapped him on the head, and he fell on his stumps. Now that's the perfect dismissal, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> told you your bouncer got wickets. And at Adelaide Oval, you side on. So the presses side on, so they're not very far from the ground. So they're seeing this and they rode it up. And unfortunately, Clive went off on an, in an ambulance and never played again. And I got in the Australian side because of that one delivery. And it, I think that that was a moment I thought I might be a bit of a... I was driving home and I saw the signs on the billboards and it said hog blast palms. And I thought, oh, I might be a bit of a chance to play for Australia. It happened after that. So how'd you find out? Did you get a phone call? Did you read it in the paper? Can't remember. Can't remember. I know that's not a good, good answer for you. But it's an You're searching answer. for more. Can't remember. Well, what you can remember is no doubt how brilliantly you performed in that debut series against England. It was a very tough time for Australian cricket, but you stood up at a time when Australia needed a bit of a hero. You took 41 wickets in that series. What do you remember about it? Because you literally just burst onto the scene. Well, I look at the pitches on that they play on now, and there's no seam in them first morning. And what they used to in those days, leave, leave a fair bit of grass on, and the wicket was always had a bit of moisture. So if you bowl first, you'd seen the ball around and we had a couple of test matches where it just seemed all over the place. I mean, every bowler in that series took a lot of, I'm not trying to run myself down too much, but it was a pretty easy 
series to take wickets. I look at the pitches now and I think to myself, I wouldn't want to bowl on them. I'd be, I'd be ringing up the, the day before and calling the selectors and say, I don't want to play tomorrow uh, because the wicket's too flat. And you know sometimes when you go out and you have a look at a pitch, you know, oh, a bit of a chance to take wickets here or this is going to be a bad day. And sometimes you go at the MCG pitches in the one days and you think, oh, I'm not getting any wickets here today. So it's just pitches, but the way they just keep going these days, they're, they're amazing, the, the modern-day bowler. Now, I said you had an amazing series personally. Unfortunately, it wasn't amazing for the team, losing the series 5-1. Do you remember what you felt after that? Because you must have felt great about the fact you could compete at international level, but the team copped a walloping. Well, Quinny, I'm an only child, and I don't really care how the team goes. I'm only interested in myself. So I was pretty happy about the wickets. We lost 5-1. Who cares, really? It didn't, didn't upset me. I know that sounds very un-Australian. That's how only children think. Now, not too long after that, Australia would be reunited again and the likes of Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson would come back into the fold. I pity the poor batsmen that had to look up and see you, Lilly and Tomo down the other end. Well, I remember Queensland, the Gabba, the change rooms, and in comes Greg Chappell, Dennis Lilly, Tomo, Marsh, Lilly uh, and um, Dougie Walters. And I, I look at them and I go, what am I doing here? I mean, when you... When you're the front-line bowler in a side that's you look in the rooms and you think, I belong here. But then when you get into a room where you look at blokes I've just idolised. Um, it took me about two years to actually physically feel at home in those rooms with those guys. And they weren't, they weren't nasty, they weren't big heads or anything like that. Just I was overawed by them for a long time. What was Lily like on the field and off the field with you? Fantastic. Um, that's a leading question, that, what you're asking me there, but um, fantastic to me. Would field, field at mid-off and always encouraging. I mean, most of us, most of us, to be honest with you, when the opposition's seven or eight wickets down and you're bowling, you're hoping the bloke down the other end doesn't get a wicket. You want to get the last two, don't you? You want them, not the bloke down the other end. That's not how they think these days, but uh, Dennis would be the sort of bloke that would be encouraging you to take wickets. If I had been Dennis Lilly, when Hogg was coming back to bowl, I'd be saying, mate, just take it easy here. I'll, I'll get them from the other end for you. You just hold that end up and I'll get yeah. the wickets. But yeah. he wasn't like that, DK, yeah. which was superb. It's safe to say during that period, though, you probably did have a few little issues with some of the senior players in the team, especially some of the captains. Well, I had a couple of ordinary captains. So, you know, and I was an only child and I was brought up on um, being able to swear and do whatever you want to at Northcote and then over in South Australia when I played for those teams. So all of a sudden you've got a mentality of being a district cricketer and all of a sudden I'm playing for Australia. So it didn't really fit in. I, I think if you spoke to Graham Yellow, he'd say I was pretty hard to get on with and, Graham, and Graham, vice versa. Graham, sometimes the field placements that Graham set, I'm walking back going, what's going on here sort of thing. You try and change them. Kim, I remember trying to change a field placement in the West Indies and he wouldn't give me a change. And a lot of balls went down to third man that wouldn't have gone there if I was bowling. I would have had a third man. But Kim, he, in his own wisdom as a captain, um, he decided not to give a third man. So those sort of things. But these days they seem pretty respectful. I think the great captains are the ones that make the bowler think he's getting the field placements he wants. So if you've got, uh, I've had some captains who are a lot smarter than me, so they've made me think, oh, I'm getting my own way. But really, they're giving me what they want, but I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I've got my own way. So you feel more settled. True or false that when Graham Yellett was captain, you and him nearly had a punch on, and Sir Donald Bradman had to intervene? Yes, Sir Donald was, uh, you know, a little bit nasty that uh, I remember the morning um, it was 
drinks on day three at the Adelaide Oval, and I had a bit of a sore groin. I said to Graham, mate, can I go off? And he said, no, you're not going off. And I said, mate, I need to get a little bit of treatment on the groin. He said, no, you're not going off. I said, Graham, watch me. And I just walked off. Well, that's a pretty ordinary thing to do. So he followed me up into the grandstand and we're arguing inside the rooms. Meanwhile, there's only one 12th man. So Graham and I are off the ground. So the 12th man goes on. That means there's no there's no 13th man. So it's the only time in the history of Australian cricket where we've only had 10. So the next day after drinks, there was only one, there was only um, 10 blokes on the on the ground representing Australia. And then the next morning I got called in front of Sir Donnelly said, Rodney, <laughs> we can't condone that sort of uh, activity by you. You'll have to brush it up a bit if you want to keep playing for Australia. I said, Sir Donald, I'm very sorry, it won't happen again. Well, that was good then. So it wasn't maybe as physically severe as it sounded at the time. It wasn't like Donald had to stand between the two of you and push you away from each other as there was going to be fisticuffs. <laughs> well, little Braddles was only about four foot, <laughs> four foot seven. He's not standing amongst two blokes wanting to have a fight. No, it was a bit nasty. It was a bit silly. But um, I look back on it now, I'm, I'm embarrassed about it, but that's how, how it was. What about Kim Hughes? Because it sounds like you've had a very interesting relationship with him along the way. Initially, when he was skipper, a little bit frosty, but down the track, a lot of positive things that came from that relationship? Well, I'm in Perth now. I'm great friends with Kim. Um, I was always pretty friendly with Kim, but he, it was, his leadership was very interesting. He should go down. In England in 81, we won the first game, and then we've, we had a draw at uh, Lords, and then we've gone to Headingley. And you go lunch on day four, and we're 120 runs in front, and England were enforced to follow on. They're seven wickets down the second innings. So we're going to win that game very easily. And then Bolton come out and made that 150. Wilson, we lose the game by 10 runs. Now, we could have gone 2-0 up in 81. And Kim, you wouldn't, you wouldn't lose the series 2-0 up. And Kim would have been remembered as a great captain. Unfortunately, we didn't. And Kim doesn't get remembered as a great captain. And it was pretty harsh the way Kim was treated as well. I don't reckon he got the respect he should have. Yeah, no, it's a fair call. Um, I think uh, Dennis would look back now and... And if Rodney was still with us, Rodney would probably say um, he, he was probably a little bit disappointed. But Kim had to be captain of Australia. When he came back from India, he batted brilliantly over in India. He made over 400 runs. We lost the series in India, but he came back. Now, he had to be captain of Western Australia. He captain Australia. He'd made, as I said, averaged really, might have averaged 60 or 55 in India. And we've seen sometimes our sides go to India and they're hopeless. Mm. And he averaged 55 over there. So he had to be captain of Western Australia. I think Rod didn't take that that well. Rod felt that he should have been captain of Western Australia. And if you're not captain of your home state, well, you can't captain Australia. Yeah. You and Kim had some interesting incidents along the way as well. Was there one time you got a wicket against the West Indies and it was rumoured that you and him nearly came to blows on the field? Well, it's true that I did try and punch him. Um, How does that happen? Well, he just happened to come in. To, I took a wicket and all of a sudden his little fat head appeared. I was about to throw a bit of a punch to say fantastic and then all of a sudden his fat head came from over yonder and all of a sudden it was pretty close in my eye line and I thought, oh, I'll just get away with a bit of... And I missed him anyway, thank goodness. What did he do? Well, he came in, he annoyed me. His field placements had annoyed me. They were terrible field placements. What more do you want if you're a lunatic fast bowler? As I said, you want the field placements how you want them. I'm After you nearly clipped him, though, how did he react? Was he shocked? Did he know you were trying to do it? I took a step back, and what really annoyed there was a there was a uh, photographer from Adelaide. Um, I should know his name. I've just quickly forgotten. I apologise. Um, 
he took a photo. It was a very good photo, and it did show me trying to punch him. So I think, and then I had to go around. We had a meeting around with all the journos, and they're all saying you tried to punch him. I said, no, nah, no, nah, you know, it's just celebrating. So I had to weasel out of that one a little bit because they do like to send you home from tours, as you know. Was the West Indies one of your favourite tours or one that daunted on you a little bit as it got closer because they were just so brilliant? I think the West Indies is a great place. It was a great place to go for an all-expenses-paid holiday. Um, and it, unfortunately, that doesn't happen if you're playing, playing for Australia. You've got to play cricket. So it would have been a great place for a holiday, but um, the West Indies were amazing. They're, they're fast bowls. They're just at you. There's nowhere to move. They're just at you. And Alan Borders, um, you won't mention that, but Alan Borders, two, two innings. That's legendary. He's two innings in... Um, in Trinidad, where he made 98 not out and 102 not out, and we forced a draw. And Alderman gets all the credit uh, for for Alan Border supporting Alan Border yeah. in the second innings. So I faced 35 balls. I hung around for him for a little <laughs> while, and Alderman gets all the credit. He faced about 60 deliveries. So, so, but AB was that was amazing. And every second ball is going through here on your chin. Now, you know, we sit here and just laugh about that. If you're facing Joel Garner from 22 yards away and every second ball's just going under your chin, your, your life's being threatened every second ball. Did they say much the West Indians no. or they didn't need to? Didn't have to. Now, you're very self-deprecating when you talk about your batting, but you made 52 runs against the West Indian team with Joel Garner as the number one bowler. That's a bloody good effort. What happened on that day? If you go out enough times, eventually you'll have one good day. Not necessarily. Not against the West Indians in the peak of their powers. I think I could get many, many consecutive ducks. So what happened that day? I think I've got 15 ducks. I don't know. It just uh, must have fired up. I always believed if Tommy Hafey was in the rooms, because they talk about um, people with an ability to lift you a little bit. Not many people can do that. But Tommy Hafey, let's, I'll use him as an example. If he was sitting in the rooms for Australia and I'm going out the bat next, I'm going to fight so much harder because I don't want to let Tommy Hafey down. If Tommy still looks at me steely and says, get out there, hog, and try something, don't come back in here, I'm going out and I'm going to try harder. But sometimes you go out there and you thought, it's a bit hard out here today. I want to get out of here. But um, that day just happened. Tommy Hafey wasn't in the rooms, but I, I must have just motivated myself that day. You were in a 97-run partnership as well. So it wasn't fluky. It wasn't swing the bat. You guys dug in. And as I said, it was an A-grade bowling lineup coming at you. Well, I think it was the highest score. I, I had the highest score for a, a, um, an Australian batsman at number 11, 52. And then bloody Glenn McGrath comes along, got a 70 against New Zealand. I mean, <laughs> what does he have to knock off records for? He's got enough wickets. So I really was annoyed when he got those runs against New Zealand. I thought, my record's gone here. Rodney, we've spoken about lots of incidents involving you. Sometimes you're in the right and sometimes you're in the wrong. And in this instance, you had nothing to do with what <laughs> transpired, but you were front and square. I want to go back to the Wacker Test in 1979. Australia and England, you've got a bad back. They make your 12th man. You think this will be a cruisy few days taking drinks out. But your good friend, Dennis Lilly, he had other ideas. Well, he he did. Look, um, who's got the best job on the planet? I, I reckon the bloke who was at Qantas, who's getting about 10 mil, he, but I reckon the second best job on the planet is 12th man for the Australian cricket team. It's a good gig. You get about uh, 20 grand a game, you've got provident fund money, you've got no responsibilities, you can do whatever you want to. And we're flying over on the plane, and they picked four fast bowlers, and I said to myself, one of these blokes is going to be 12th man. So... In the nets leading up to the game at the Wacker, I pretended I had a bad back. I was rubbing my back and Chapel's gone, oh, how's your back? So I sucked him in and there I was, 12th man. 
So lying around, put the feet up, take it easy. I said to the one of the selectors, can you go around and get me an ice cream? Alan, the great Alan Davidson, legendary Alan Davidson. I said to him, can you get me an ice cream, Alan? I've got to keep an eye on the game. And Alan, and then another time I said to Alan, Alan, I'm going to have a bit of a snooze. Can you just keep an eye? So he was just fantastic. Anyway, so 12th man. And then Dennis Lee produces this aluminium bat. And all of a sudden I've got to go out and take it to him. And, and Dennis is one of those blokes, I mean, he seriously, when, when he bowled, he was awesome. But when he batted, he looked just as awesome because he had a mouth guard in. And I've been sent out by Greg Chappell with a couple of wooden bats. And I've walked up behind him. I said, excuse me, Dennis. He said, what do you want? I said, mate, Greg's asked me to bring those wooden bats out. He said, go and go, nick off and go and tell your mate in there to get so-and-so. So I said, mate, mate. And he turned and walked away. I was in the middle of Wacker Cricket Ground with two wooden bats, man, looking like an absolute idiot. And I could just see Richie Benoit coming back going, Hogs looking pretty stupid, those two bats. <laughs> anyway, bless his heart, Max O'Connell, and then we had a disagreement, and then Dennis stormed off, and then I went and hid in the toilets. So why was Chapel so opposed to him using the wooden bat? Was he not allowed to when he specifically said, you're not allowed to use that bat, and he did it anyway? It was a publicity stunt for his aluminium bat for kids at school, like an eat stones with and all that sort of thing. And Chapel said to him, you can use it in the nets. So he said, as long as you don't use it in a game, and he snuck it out. <laughs> he snuck it out on the He was not out overnight about, oh, I don't know, about 10 with Jeff Dimmick. And the next morning, he didn't see, he, he snuck past Greg, because Greg was up the front having a cup of tea. He snuck past him, and it wasn't until he stepped on the ground that he's gone, I won't say what he said, but he went off the planet. And then Rod Marsh came over and said, oh, mate, just relax, let's see what happens. And then the first, the last ball of Botham's first over, he drove it and it pulled up about that far inside the fence and they only ran three. It was like a conspiracy inside the rooms and they all yelled out, get him a wooden bat out straight away. So he had to take a wooden bat out. What did you make of the aluminium bat? Was it good enough to play test cricket with or not? No. no. no so aluminium bat. <laughs> it's like when you're a kid trying to roll up a paper footy and try and kick it around, same thing, hopeless. I want to ask about one more incident. This time it does involve you and does involve bats again. Talk us about the time the Pakistanians ran you out. You weren't too impressed and you took it out on the wickets. <laughs> no, there was a moment where um, you follow what the, the batsmen do. And I remember that Ian Chappell used to come down and tap the wicket down. I, I received a ball from Safraz, probably the greatest uh, ball champ of the game's ever seen, Safras, and um, match fixer and whatever you want to call him. Anyway, I've gone down to tap the wicket down and and I'd pushed it out in the covers, so it's a dead ball, really. And Jarvid snuck around behind, whipped the bales off, and the umpire was forced to give me out. And as I walked off, the, I, you know how big the MCG is, I'm just about to step off the ground and uh, what's his name, the captain, Mohammed, Mohammed someone, he came up and said, Hoggy, come back. We're, we're sorry. So I've come all the way back and Neil Harvey's brother, little Mick Harvey said, no, nah, no, nah, you can't come back. He's out. He can't call you back. So I just smashed the stumps out of the ground and walked off and no one said one word to me. I've smashed the stumps out of the ground in a test match. I've gone inside. Nobody's come in and give me a lecture or anything. No one's, and half the team were giggling and I was giggling a bit by that time. I was annoyed about the run out, but I got inside and I was giggling a little bit, but no one came up and said, no, nothing. Happy days. That's probably one of those times, though, you were in the right. Like, it wasn't right what they did to you that day. You can't be running blokes out like that when clearly it's a dead ball. It's against the spirit of the game. So clearly the hierarchy in the Australian dressing room understood you were just taking out your frustration. No, I think the rule, rules have changed. You can't bowl underarms anymore and the, the umpires can deem the ball dead. 
Um, so if the ball trickles out in the covers, they deem it dead. But someone can't come along and sneak round. And you see the odd batsman saying, oh, can I leave the wicket? You know, yep. can I go out? You don't have to do that. But the umpires now can come in and just say, no, sorry, it's not out, it's a dead ball. Now, we've spoken about a lot about your test cricket. You played 79 ODIs for Australia. And that was a period where one day international cricket really did explode. What did you love about that form of the game? Um, that was hard work. It's only 10 overs, but it's hard work. And you, I never tried to get wickets in that, just try and bowl line and length and try and, if you don't go for any runs, that's what you want to achieve. And in these days, in those days, most blokes would go around the three runs and over. So if you bowled 10 overs, if you went under 30, you're happy. And if yep. you're over 30, you're unhappy. So let's, if, you, if you're 25 runs off your 10 overs, you've had, you think, I've done my job for the team. And if you're over 35, 40, if you're over 40, you're pretty upset. These days, they're going at six and over, seven and over. And I think to myself, how would you do it? And yeah. I think if you ever look back through strike rates, not strike rates, run rates, um, you'll see all the pass players, Hadley, Garner, Lily, all them have got the best strike rates because the game is so much different to what it is now. Did you enjoy playing ODI cricket more or test cricket more? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, it was pretty exciting to play one-day cricket in front of big crowds and, and that sort of thing. Um, and some test matches. Uh, that's a hard question. I can't answer that. Now, when you finished up your test career, you went on two tours of South Africa in the 85-86 series and then the 86-87 series. It was very controversial at the time. I think the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, called you a traitor. What led to that? And what was the reaction like in South Africa? Well, what led to that was the South Africans were trying to keep their, their standard of cricket up. So they'd had England over there. Um, so they wanted us, so they, they approached us and, they, and um, I was getting near the end of my um, career and I remember the 83 World Cup in England. Uh, people wondered why most of us Australian cricketers stayed on for an extra couple of days after we'd been knocked out. We just stayed on to go and see Ali Backer to sign up for, uh, um, for um, the tour. So that was, that was um, right at the end of my career. So you're going to take it, aren't you? It extended my career for another two years. And we met, we flew out of Australia, instead of flying out as a team, we all flew individually to Singapore, then up to Amsterdam. We all met up in uh, Amsterdam and then flew down because they didn't want to alert anybody in the media. Because the media were watching to see what's going on here and nobody knew. And then we rocked into South Africa for the tour. What was it like in South Africa though? Were you basically heroes for coming to their country and they were so desperate to see some sport? They took us to places in South Africa that were okay. They didn't take us where, where there was problem issues. Soweto, we didn't go to Soweto and see how some people were living. Um, but we kept the game going. And the crowds were um, pretty, uh, a little bit like Ed's best in the crowds. They were really nasty and rude. Right. Toward, oh, they're a nasty mob. And they, I remember Bill Laurie going there in, they got thrashed 5-0 uh, or whatever it was in about 68, Laurie's team. And he told, told me that the balls that came in they were instructed, the balls that were thrown in from, say, final leg or third men, don't throw it to the keeper, throw it at the batsman. Wow. They were instructed. That's how they went about their work. Now, they, they did the things that just unsettled people. So every ball's coming in from the outfield isn't coming into the keeper, it's coming in at the batsman. It's an unsettling sort of thing. And then they obviously had a bloke called Proctor who was unbelievable. During that period, it was obviously a good financial way to end your career. I've heard you say previously when you started, you were getting about 2,000 a test. Was that that sound right when you started yep, playing? Yeah, two grand. Yep, yep. By the time you finished playing for Australia Ballpark, what were you getting a test match? 
No, I reckon it was still about two and a half a test, but they brought in um, um, players, got selected, the top four players got a certain uh, fee, uh, which was a yearly fee, plus per test match. I think 20 grand was the top, the top four players were getting 20, 25, plus the test matches they played each year. So, but the people who signed on for World Series, if they had a stayed with Cricket Australia, because we played a bit, we played um, eight, we played six test matches against England. We then played two test matches against Pakistan. Then we played six test matches in in in, in India, and then you had a, a, a World Cup. So the people who went, some of the players that saw, saw, signed up with uh, with Kerry Packer would have made more money with us than what than going there. If they had to just stayed fat. Yeah. With the South African option, how financially lucrative was that compared? Yeah, 200 tax free. Oh, wow. Yeah. 200 tax free. Yeah. And I blew it all on a share market crash in 87, unfortunately. You're kidding me. Yeah. So two payments, oh, so 400,000? No, no. Just, oh, two, two tools, 200 oh, tax dear. free. That's, uh, that's a setback? So, yeah, it's a setback in life, yep. You live and learn. You don't seem too concerned about it all these years later. What are you doing? Yeah. You can't sit around for, and frown about lost money. No, you can go and make more. And you made some more money post-cricket when you went into the media. I'm always a little bit disappointed we didn't see more of you in the media. You've done media work, bits and pieces here and there. Was there a reason you didn't do a little more along the way? I'm sitting by the phone all the time. So you wait. Um, I reckon in recent times, um, women now are 50% of what goes on. But I wasn't good enough on TV. I wasn't any good for TV. What about radio? You were terrific uh, radio, on radio. No, I liked radio. Um, yeah, radio was all right. But I supported uh, um, supported a couple of people, uh, Ox and Marco. And so I left, left there and there was, wasn't another opportunity. So that's just how it is. That's how it do? goes. One thing you did very well and probably your highlight in the media was a column you wrote in the Truth newspaper <laughs> after watching a blonde-haired cricketer in his second district game of cricket and you declared he'd take 500 test wickets. And that bowler was Shane Keith Warne. Shane Keith Warne, yeah. Tell us about that, because yeah. that's one of the best predictions in the history of sport. Well, I faced him, um, and I'd faced the best league spinners, Abdul Qadir, fantastic bowler, and I could sort of keep him out a little bit. He had an unbelievable wrong'un. And then Peter Sleep was Australia's number one spinner at the time, and I played, played with Peter in Adelaide, and Peter was a good leg spinner, but I could play Peter okay. And then the first four balls I received from this Shane Keith, I had no idea what was going on. Because he had that ball that fizzed back in towards you and then spun away. You couldn't pick up his length. Um, just amazing. Well, we've, <laughs> I don't have to say how good Shane was, but uh, you could hear the ball coming, fizzing through the air, which you can't hear with most. They'd say, they say that Lions ball fizzes through the air as well. That's why he gets that. That's why he catches a lot of people caught it mid on, deep mid on, because they're under hit it. Um, but Shane's bowling, oh, just incredible. So I was writing for the Truth newspaper, one of your old, old lurks. My and, first uh, job. So I thought to myself, I'm going to write something sensational. So I just said, Shane, after his first shield game, Shane will take 500 test wickets. Because I worked on 100 test matches, five wickets. And, and they wanted a bit, of, they liked a bit of controversy. So I wrote... They wrote it, full back page, and they got the sack two days later. Isn't that amazing? The best sports prediction of all time. <laughs> you're not only not lauded and not celebrated, it cost you the job because they thought it was too unrealistic. Well, a bloke rang me up. He said, you haven't got a contract with us. You're writing rubbish. We're going to sack you. And I thought to myself, hang on a minute. You want rubbish, don't you? So anyway, I went home, sat on the couch, and my wife said, well, you better go and get a fair income job. So what did you do? Went and bought a fruit shop. Huh, there we go. How'd that go? 
Uh, not bad for six years. Cash. It's the greatest. Um, well, they're trying to cut it out of society now, but cash is the best. Cash in your pocket. Nothing better. Well, the Edge Baston in 2009, I, I uh, walked in the last day and, and Langer was the highest scorer on 32. And we were eight down and, and Lee was just gone to the wicket. And I thought top score and, it was, and Brett Lee was um, 20 to 1 to be the highest score. So I put 50 quid on that. And you get 50 times 20 and 20 pound notes and you thought, you fold that and put you in your jeans. It's it's as good a feeling as you can have in life. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. That's no. absolutely sensational. And Shane Warne, with every wicket, you must have had a little smirk from ear to ear. Oh, the chest went out on the couch. <laughs> I predicted this. This was happening. Wasn't he magnificent, though? And LBWs. Shane and Terry Alderman, how many LBWs did they get? Unbelievable. He broke your record, Terry Alderman, didn't That's he? That's why I brought his name up. <laughs> when I ring him, I say, hello, 42, and he says, hello, 41. <laughs> But he should go down as an absolute megastar. Doesn't get talked about enough because he took 41 wickets and the most wickets by an Australian over was in the 30s, I reckon, prior to all of them. He took 41 in 81 and then he missed because of um, uh, because of the Rebel Tour in 85. Then he um, goes in 89, he takes 42 or whatever it was. So two tours, he's taken more wickets than anyone's ever thought of. And no one talks about him enough. He just should be an absolute legend. Final question on the Rebel Tour. What was it like from the Australian fans when you came back home? Um, no. Good as gold. No one, no one didn't bother people. There was no pushback or were people intrigued by it? Did you get asked a lot of questions about what it was like in South no, Africa? Not really. Not no, really. I think it was commented a little bit. But the journos who went over there weren't always interested in the cricket. They were always trying to get, you know, outside of outside the cricket sort of features. They'd go and ask some people to lie down in a park and take photos of that and then send it back and look look how people were being treated. Yeah. But it was never on the cricket. And it was hard fought cricket, really hard fought. And they had Garth LaRue, and the, the toughest man I've ever played against, Clive Rice. Clive Rice. And it was a pleasure to play against Graham Pollock at the time. And Graham never played back. His first movement was forward. And we had Rackerman and, Mc, and McCurdy, we had a couple of ch young champion fast bowlers, and he never played back to them. Always the front foot forward and never hit the ball to field, fieldsman. I've never seen anything like it. He made a couple of hundreds and he was 42 years of age, but he never hit the ball to Philsman. It was just a push and picked a gap, four. And knew how, and a lot of champs know how if a bowler's a bit weak, they'll prop up one end. They'll occupy that end and get a lot of runs up that end and they're very good at getting singles off the last ball from down the other end so they can get up to face the, the lesser bowler. And that's why the Australian side at the moment is fantastic. There's nowhere to hide because Green, who was under bowled by Australia, but Green adds the fifth bowl. That's a very, very potent attack we've got now. Cricket has changed a lot since you played, especially with the emergence of T20 cricket. Do you still love your cricket? You love watching it? Sounds like you're just as passionate as ever. Um, as we spoke earlier, the, the the um, World Cups, the World Cup in T20, the World Cup in the one day. I don't like 50 over games at all, except when they're World Cups. They're fantastic. And it's a diff they play it differently. Blokes, blokes playing for 40 overs just to occupy the crease, then they go, nah, there's the cricket. They can hit sixes anytime they want to, the modern day cricket, which they prove in T20 games. Blokes bowl the same in one day, isn't it? They push the ball into the covers instead of hitting it over covers or over the bloke's head. So, no, I love, I love cricket. Yeah. Well, I've loved this chat to you today. We're going to finish with some rapid-fire questions, and there's no room for modesty. You've been far too modest for me. <laughs> Best ever bowling performance? By me? Yep. 
Um, probably in Perth, late one night, um, three quick wickets, bowled pretty fast that night. Against? Pakistan. So that's the one you look back at and you say, that's when I was at my best oh, that night. Oh, Zahir was pooping himself, yep. Best player you ever played with? Dennis Lilly, Greg Chappell. Best player you ever played against? Viv. Viv. Favourite? I don't have to say his surname, do I? No, no. And you want to throw in Michael Holding. I mean, all the West Indies are all fantastic, but Viv's the man. Favourite ever victory? Favourite ever victory. I don't think I've played in too many wins. Oh, we won the Ashes in 82-3. That was, that that was, was the a, highlight? Oh, that was a highlight. Yep. That was a tough time for Australian cricket. And biggest regret? Biggest regret. Not to have Tommy Hafey standing next, <laughs> next to me when I had to go out and bat and not working hard enough on my fielding. Merv Hughes, when he first started, wasn't much of a batsman and wasn't much of a fieldsman. And then we had the professional coach of Bobby Simpson and Merv ended up a darn good number nine batsman and very good in the field because he worked on it. You've got to work on it. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. Rodney Hogg, I've loved the chat today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Good, Good, mate. Cheers.